Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hello, hello. Welcome to our annual Halloween Horror Story Show. I'm not going to talk like that, but we do this every year and we talk about horror movies. We try to peg it to what's going on in the world. Well, guess what? I mean, the pandemic kind of answered that question. But we're also looking at the 40th anniversary of The Shining, which is about one family trapped away from everybody else, unable to contact the outside world with things going haywire inside. I can't think how that resembles the present moment at all. Can you? Anyway, we've got a lot to tell you about. Stay tuned for Scary Stuff. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Yes, it's time for our annual Halloween horror show. We're looking, as we do every year, at the horror movie and television genres. We're trying to figure out what they tell us and what we tell them, too. I mean, you could sort of say that you might have been watching horror movies for 10, 20, 30 years, but now you are kind of living in one. And so did that prepare you any better to survive? Actually, we're going to give you an answer to that question. I'm not 100% sure it's the right answer. We'll also just talk about how the historical situation out there in the real world does somehow or other inform or change horror movies in general. So Stephen King wrote... A good horror story is one that functions on a symbolic level, using fictional and sometimes supernatural elements to help us understand our own deepest real fears. And King also believed that those fears fluctuate with conditions on the ground, you might say. I mean, for example, you know, a movie like Amityville Horror kind of coincides with the time when Americans were more likely to treat houses as investments than as homes. And King has this description of watching the movie in a little movie theater somewhere in inland Maine, and there was a woman sitting in front of him kind of rocking back and forth in a near religious ecstasy, saying, as blood poured out of the walls, and 
<laughs> went down the stairs and stuff. And she was going, think of the bills. Think of the bills. Because that's basically an economic anxiety story. Well, so the question is, here in the middle of a pandemic and a lockdown and stuff like that, is there a corresponding set of analogies we can make to the horror genre? Here to help us do that is Megan McCluskey, a reporter for Time magazine. She wrote, horror films have always tapped into pop culture's most urgent fears. COVID-19 will be their next inspiration. So, Megan, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So let's just start with an example that is completely on the nose and makes no attempt to disguise the fact that it's kind of lockdown inspired. And then maybe we can spend a little time thinking about the history of this whole process. But there is a Rob Savage movie called Host, and it was made during the lockdown. Tell us more about it. Right. So Rob Savage made this movie um, basically that takes place entirely over Zoom, which, you know, so many of us have been dealing with on a daily basis, just all these meetings or like get togethers, virtual get togethers. And in the movie, this group of friends basically decides to, instead of just having a normal Zoom hangout as they've been having, they're going to host a seance and they're going to try to talk to some spirits. Spirit, we invite you to use us to pass on any communication you might have. Is there anyone there? Please come forth. And of course, that goes horribly wrong and you get to see the fallout. But It's basically them all separated having these things happen to them and none of them are able to help each other because they're isolated. So Megan, that's an example of a movie that doesn't disguise its origins. I mean, we know why this movie is being made and why it's being made the way that it is. But the history of horror, as you point out, is one in which our anxieties about real world situations are often rehearsed and, and rehearsed in a very specific way, specific to the time period. So, for example, in the Depression, there were certain kinds of movies that were popular. They tended to be kind of monster movies, monster horror, chiller theater, to use the SCTV designation. So what's the coincidence between that and the historical moment? Right. So during that time... America was sort of going through this period of isolation after World War One, And also just there was so much economic anxiety going on that people sort of wanted to escape. And that was sort of like the first golden age of horror where people wanted to go to the movie theaters and see something that had no chance of happening in real life. And it was going to provide a form of escape for them for a few hours. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! In the name of God! And then also in a lot of those movies related to the period of isolation, the monsters, the werewolves or the vampire Dracula was coded as some sort of foreign entity that was, you know, outside of the realm of the United States. And that was a danger outside of our world that was we were living in every day. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of xenophobia in those movies, a lot of coded xenophobia. I mean, King Kong comes from someplace else. The Mummy comes from someplace else. Frankenstein and Dracula happen somewhere else. These are not American stories. They're either stories that take place somewhere else or where something from somewhere else comes here and causes a lot of trouble. And it's probably a combination of post-World War I and the burgeoning immigration to America, the fact that America was increasingly becoming more diverse, setting up anxiety. So we can move from there to the Atomic Age and McCarthyism. Some of the Atomic Age ones, once again, they're not too mysterious about what, where they come <laughs> from or what they're invoking. But tell us about that. Right. Yeah. So you got a lot of these 
uh, creature features, as they call them, where, you know, something happens, usually something atomic in nature that blows up these either normally small creatures into giant beings that are wreaking havoc. Godzilla, you have them, which is, you know, about ants being blown up that big. A couple of months ago in the desert of New Mexico, gigantic ants were discovered. These ants are similar in appearance and characteristics to the household and garden, as you're familiar with, except that they are mutations, ranging in size from 9 to 12 feet in length. And just all of these things that normally would not be a threat, but are suddenly becoming a threat because of this new science. And meanwhile, you've got movies like Invasion of the Body Snatchers that clearly, I think, are reactions, at least in its original iteration, clearly are reactions to fears about communism, fears about infiltration, viral ideologies, I guess you could say. One of the periods that really interests me is the, well, I think you would call it the Vietnam era, where you have movies like Psycho, Rosemary's Baby, and The Exorcist. So tell me what you and the people that you interviewed about this, what did you see there? So I feel like you have sort of twofold of this Vietnam era question where America was sort of coming out of, or a lot of people in America were coming out of relying so much on traditional values and sort of moving away from this idea of the nuclear family. And so you get these movies like Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, which, you know, are like supposed to inspire direct fear in people that are followers of Christianity and just not the traditional religion and people that are worshiping Satan and all these fears of that sort. And then Psycho also is moving. This was one that one of the professors that I talked to really wanted to note was sort of the first movie that moved horror from outside of the family where the family was the realm of safety and moved it in the family where it's the man's mother that has made him into this sort of monster killer. And it's a perversion inside his own family rather than outside of it. Mother, please, it's just for a few days, just for a few days so they won't find you. Just for a few days in that dark, dank fruit cellar. No, you hit me there once, boy, and you won't do it again. Not ever again. Now get out. And I think one of the things you're seeing, too, is a more socially fluid America, a more transient America, too, where people move to new places. So the person that you marry isn't anymore the person that you've known since elementary school, you know, in the town that you grew up in. The person that you marry is somebody that you met much more recently than that. I think that's a lot of the anxiety in Rosemary's Baby, too. You know, it's like, who, who, who is John Cassavetes? Who, you know, <laughs> who are these people anyway? And I do, <laughs> I do agree that I've always believed that The Exorcist is a reality action to what the theorist Philip Reeve called the triumph of the therapeutic. He wrote a book talking about how the therapeutic and clinical model of an understanding human beings and human problems had driven out the religious model. And so, I mean, to me, The Exorcist is kind of a backlash movie. At the beginning, Regan is having all these problems and, you know, they get psychiatrists and hypnotists and spinal taps and all kinds of stuff that you would actually in a modern situation get. But her problem really exists in the spirit world, in the religious world. So, yeah, I think that's sort of our anxiety that we're letting go of a set of solutions that used to exist, even if they weren't very good ones. Well, it's a symptom of a type of disturbance in the chemical electrical activity of the brain. In the case of your daughter in the temporal lobe, it's up here in the lateral part of the brain. It's rare, but it does cause bizarre hallucinations. And usually just before a convulsion. A convulsion? The shaking of the bed. That's doubtless due to muscular spasms. Oh, no, 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 that was no spasm. So, yeah, I mean, now 
it does appear that Jordan Peele and a bunch of other movie makers are addressing some pretty interesting, in really interesting ways, some of the inequalities that have really risen up into the headlines over the last five to 10 years. Say a little bit more about that. Right. Well, I think it really goes back to this idea of the ideal viewer, which I spoke about in the article with one of my sources. She spoke about how for so long in horror movies, the ideal viewer, which is the person that is going to watch the movie and relate to what's going on most was white people and especially white males. And so now we're getting all of these new perspectives, whether that's from a black experience in America or a woman's experience in America or anything else that's outside of that just white male experience. And so the person who was before the ideal viewer is becoming the person who's having to learn how to empathize with others and see problems from their perspective rather than just white men being the target of these movies. Yeah, so you've got a couple of constituencies getting going, particularly as new generations of filmmakers feel empowered to make these movies. So whether it's Jordan Peele or some of the women filmmakers that that you talk about who made, for example, The Babadook or Relic, these are now women being able to write women's horror stories. Right, so I think the women's horror story especially is more of this idea of the horror again, like turned inward rather than from the outside world. In a lot of those movies that I mentioned, especially The Duke, or even in Shirley, which isn't a traditional horror movie, but is sort of focusing on the horrors of their own lives and like what their inner world is making terrifying to them rather than anything coming from the outside world. You know, The Duke is a metaphor for grief and depression and that sort of inner emotional rather than outer forces coming to attack or whatever it may be. If you're a really clever one and you know what it is to see, then you can make friends with a special one, a friend of you and me. His name is Mr. Babadook, and this is his book. So these, there are movies that constitute essentially rehearsals for the moment we're in. You know, It Comes at Night takes place during some kind of pandemic. And 10 Cloverfield Lane is a lockdown bunker kind of movie where the outside threat is not as specific. And, and then there are even questions like, should, should we be locked down? Not everybody agrees that it's a great idea down there, which also, I mean, a lot of it really does seem to tap into a moment that's happening now, years after these movies were made. Right. So I feel like, like you were saying, a lot of those movies feel sort of prescient now, especially as we're living through these months and months and months of being inside our houses. And there's sort of this outside force that we can't contain. But, you know, some people are not as big believers in it as others are. And even though it's, you know, a scientific thing and you just get all of these different factions going on and it sort of leads to this total breakdown of society. And obviously in those movies, it's gone past what we're at now but there's definitely like the same fears apply where people are afraid of going outside people are afraid of interacting with others you don't know how other people are going to react to things and I think it's just that fear of we're alone and how do we get past that and what's going on how can we stop this thing that's happening to us that's making us be alone and feel like this and I think also there's a way in which some of these movies suggest at a certain point you might be able to master some of the the techniques of dealing with the existing somewhat supernatural or unusual threat. The problem is other people. The problem is that other people are incredibly freaking dangerous. You killed my baby! 
which I'm assuming you would now predict that we're going to see even more movies in the coming years that explore this theme somehow. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I definitely see foresee more, probably more zombie things, but hopefully like different takes and a new way of looking at it that sort of captures the current moment rather than just everything we've seen before. I do think a common theme about these things, whether it's a zombie apocalypse or something else is, what happens when the normal constraints are taken off? So what happens when the government goes away and most of the trappings of society go away, you know, and the things that make us conform a little bit or a lot go away? Who do we turn into? And and the message of a lot of this culture is, well, we don't all turn into bad people, but we don't all turn into good people. We turn into much less predictable people, right? If you don't have society structures in place, then you're a little bit more free to act on your own impulses and people's impulses aren't always good. So I'm thinking that might be, maybe it's, because we're sort of seeing that now that there are people who think they shouldn't have to wear masks and they'll show up in grocery stores and terrorize the employees there with their maskless shopping behavior. And I'm thinking maybe that's the thing we'll see more of is what happens when the rules are harder to enforce. I don't know. Any thoughts? Yeah. So actually, one of the things that I talked about that I didn't mention too much in the piece, but with Professor Kenitra Brooks, who I spoke to for the article, she spoke about how sort of a movie like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which back then was coded for communists very clearly, sort of movies like that, like you're saying, were about people that don't want to conform to what the top scientists and top health experts in the country are recommending and sort of like this more extremist group. It'll be coded for that rather, the people that are like coming to take you over. Your new bodies are growing in there. They're taking you over, cell for cell, atom for atom. There's no pain. Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds, your memories, and you're reborn into an untroubled world. Right. Invasion of the body snatchers. Asymptomatic transmission. You know, (laughs) it's the same thing. How do you know? How do you know which one actually has the problem? All right. Well, I don't know if I look forward to these movies, Megan. I'm not as <laughs> courageous as you are, but they'll be there anyway, whether I want them to be there or not. Thanks so much for joining us today, though. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Megan McCleskey, a reporter for Time magazine. So why do people watch horror movies? I actually think about that a lot. I think about it more than I actually watch horror movies. But one possibility is that people watch things that scare them as a way of maybe rehearsing those fears, rehearsing them in the relatively safe context of a movie theater or their home with maybe the idea that ultimately, you know, they're a little bit more prepared to face those fears or some analog to those fears in real life. Well, this question was explored by our next guest. Colton Scrivener is a PhD candidate in the Department of Comparative Human Development at the University of Chicago. He is joining us from Denmark right now. So explain what it is that you decided to study. Well, we were interested in whether or not horror fans were dealing with the pandemic differently than, say, people who weren't horror fans. And we sort of got this idea for two reasons. The first was that we noticed, you know, when the pandemic started, movies like Contagion surged in popularity. So people were seeking out kind of these simulations that mirrored what was going on in the real world. 
So there were sort of, I think there were kind of two kinds of people at the beginning of the pandemic as regards this particular question. People who would watch Contagion or read Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel or something like that, and people who really didn't want to do that. But I mean, Contagion is, before we get into the study, it might be a bit of a special case in the sense that it actually does have real information. I mean, terms like social distancing are used. There's ways in which Contagion is kind of very predictive of what we just went through. There are stories circulating on the internet that in India and elsewhere, the drug ribavirin has been shown to be effective against this virus. Yet, Homeland Security is telling the CDC not to make any announcements until stockpiles of the drug can be secured. Well, Dr. Gupta, there continue to be evaluations of several drugs. Ribavirin is among them. But right now, our best defense has been social distancing. No handshaking, staying home when you're sick, washing your hands frequently. You know, there's, there's sort of a sense in which it's not an analog so much as it is just an earlier copy of what we're going through right now. So, Colton, it wouldn't surprise me that people got useful information out of it. Yeah, I think, you know, the more interesting question then is why were other movies that weren't specifically Contagion also booming? So, for example, if you looked on Netflix around that time, apocalyptic movies in general were really popular. They were sort of they were trending in many places. And so, you know, we, we were interested in not just what do people get from pandemic-specific movies, but what might they be getting from sort of these movies that inspire fear in other ways. So a term that crops up in your work is the morbidly curious person. Tell us about that person. Yeah, so this is a construct that I've been working on throughout my PhD. And the idea is that, you know, it's something that I think a lot of people are familiar with generally, you know, this idea that you can be morbidly curious about something. So you're sort of curious about something that's, you know, related to death or is sort of gruesome or grisly, you know, things like violence or sort of body disgust or maybe serial killers or things like that, the supernatural. And so I've been working on a scale that will help sort of test this psychometrically. So basically someone can take the survey and it will give them a score and it should predict their behavior to some extent, specifically their behavior that might be considered morbidly curious. So things like watching horror movies or going to haunted houses or having an interest in the supernatural or true crime. So another quality that you wanted to examine kind of on a parallel track would be, I guess, resilience, right? I mean, you want to know, do these people have any particular advantages if they've imbued themselves with this kind of culture? Do they have any advantages in a situation like this? So how do you study a question like that? Yeah, so that's something that my colleagues and I had thought about before. You know, maybe people who scare themselves for fun, sort of learn emotion regulation skills or other kinds of coping mechanisms to deal with fear and deal with anxiety. And so we came up with this scale that we called the pandemic preparedness resilience scale. But basically, it's just a short questionnaire asking people about how they're dealing with the pandemic. So, you know, it asked them if they've been experiencing greater anxiety than usual, greater depression, or sleeplessness or irritability. We asked them if they were able to find things that they enjoyed doing during the pandemic, if they found any aspects of COVID interesting. We also asked people some preparedness questions. So we asked them if they were caught off guard by the consequences of the pandemic or if they sort of knew what to buy when things started selling out. And so we came up with this specific questionnaire because we noticed that a lot there are a lot of resilient skills out there and many of them are very good, but they're really sort of tailored for single impact events, you know, an earthquake or a tsunami or a terrorist attack or some single event that happens, you know, one day or two days. 
and COVID was a little different. And so the questions weren't really tailored to something that had been going on for months. It is interesting as you think about that, because there are ways in which watching certain kinds of popular culture could prepare you mentally for things, something that goes on for months. I mean, once again, The Walking Dead's a great example. It's been on TV forever and ever and ever. And it is one long conversation, basically, about how do human beings prepare for the breakdown of government, for the presence of a, a biologically deadly addition to the population of a globe. Did you get bit? Bit, bit, chewed, maybe scratched, anything like that. No, I got shot. I just shot, as far as I know. Fever would have killed you by now. I don't think I have one. Be hard to miss. I mean, there's a way in which you could sort of look at something like that and say, well, if you did watch that, you'd be thinking a lot about these questions, right? Yeah. So I think that there are some specific ways that movies and TV shows like The Walking Dead might help you deal with the pandemic better. So like those that you mentioned, you sort of understand what the world might look like when social institutions and governments break down, when people become a little less trustworthy, when there's an infectious disease about and then there are sort of these other ways that we studied. So if you watch, you know, a ghost movie, that doesn't tell you much about a pandemic, right? There may be some symbolic themes you could pull out. But in general, like a ghost movie doesn't tell you much about what the world is like during COVID. And so why would people who watch supernatural movies, for example, be more resilient during a pandemic? And what we speculate in the paper is that these people who watch a lot of scary movies or read a lot of scary books or you know, go to haunted houses, basically people who scare themselves for fun, they might be developing skills that allow them to overcome fear and overcome anxiety in a safe setting, which they can then sort of import when they face fear or anxiety in the real world. I mean, it kind of makes sense. It's probably also you're dealing with the release of those neurochemicals that fear would excite. Once again, in a practice setting, they're a little bit more less of a shock when they occur in the real setting. I'll just sort of throw out one idea, which is, you know, when 9-11 happened, I remember vividly on that day having the thought, I've seen movies that are kind of like this, you know, I mean, we were disorganized, we were frightened, we were shocked, but there also was in my mind this idea, well, this does feel so much like so many movies that I've ever seen. But then I sort of wonder what happens down the road. It might be interesting for you to study these people again, like a year after the lockdown, because you sort of wonder how long that lasts, whatever kind of inoculation you get from from watching the horror movies and practicing being that afraid and stuff like that. At some point, you have to come to grips with the fact that this isn't one of those movies, that the stakes right. are higher, the consequences are worse. And, and I sort of wonder, you know, you know, what, you know what I'm saying? That long term, people may find that the vaccinating effect of those movies wears off? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. In the study, we tried to do a sort of a short version of that. So we, the study was conducted in April. So it was about a month after uh, COVID was declared a global pandemic. And then a month later, so this would have been in uh, June, we did sort of a follow-up study to see how stable things were. And they, in, at least at one month post, so one, one month after coronavirus was declared a pandemic, and then one month after that, the scores were very similar, the results were similar, but it's, yeah, it's an open question as to whether, you know, a year from now, will you still find that effect or will it sort of wear on people the same, all the same? <laughs> 
That was Colton Scrivener, a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Comparative Human Development at the University of Chicago. We'll take a break. We're going to come back and look at maybe the most famous movie where people have to kind of quarantine, although it's because they're way, way up in a snowy hotel and they've made some very, very bad decisions as a nuclear family. So every year for our Halloween show, we focus for a while on one particular movie. We had an opportunity to talk to two terrific guests about the movie The Shining. We did that in early September. You didn't really need to know that. But with us are uh, David McKicks, uh, who's Moore's Distinguished Professor of English at the University of Houston and the author of Stanley Kubrick, American filmmaker. James Henley is the co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. So we're going to talk a little bit uh, about The Shining, which I saw at Trinity cine studio or right around the time or shortly after it came out uh david we're going to have you kick this off um there's a way in which stanley kubrick has taken stephen king's novel and done some different things with it spoilers are coming here spoilers are coming (laughs) i mean for example in maybe a very chilly kubrickian way the jack nicholson character jack freezes to death at the end i believe there's like a big explosion at the end of stephen king's book so what is kubrick trying to do with his film that's maybe a little different from king's original purpose well first of all in king's novel which is kind of a loose baggy monster but it's a very effective novel there's an enormous amount of backstory in the novel we hear a lot about jack's growing up about his alcoholism about his life as a school teacher in vermont kubrick cuts all of that you know he goes directly to the interview that jack has before he takes over the overlook hotel in colorado for the winter with his wife and child the only thing that can get a bit trying up here during the winter is a tremendous sense of isolation. Well, that just happens to be exactly what I'm looking for. I'm, uh, I'm outlining a new writing project, and uh, five months of peace is just what I want. How about your wife and son? How do you think they'll take to it? They'll love it. Right. The wife, of course, is superbly played by Shelley Duval, And that was a question, too, just to leap forward a bit to the King novel, for those who know it, the character Dick Halloran survives in that novel, and he actually becomes the boyfriend of Jack's wife. And Jack, as he said, has been immolated in some kind of boiler room explosion. So Kubrick invented this tremendous sequence at the end of the film, a big technical challenge in which Jack freezes to death in the snowy labyrinth, you know, as he's pursuing Danny, his child. Danny eludes him very cleverly. All of that was done by Kubrick, and King hated that sequence. King later made a TV movie based on his novel of The Shining, and he stuck to his idea, which was topiary that came to life as animals, not nearly as good as the (laughs) frozen labyrinth, to say the least. Well, James, there's a way in which, you know, King talks a lot about how horror is simply the anxieties that are embedded in real life 
writ large. And I think that's sort of where we start with The Shining, right? There's something really, really scary about any married couple plus child spending that amount of time in that much isolation with so little recourse to to anyone or anything. I mean, you begin with that idea that the nuclear family with nothing else to support it or nourish it is kind of a scary concept. And you go from there, right? Yes. I mean, I think that that's the basis of the King novel, certainly. And I think that he... In that novel, he's really, at a very basic level, creating a horrifying, disturbing story that really, it doesn't touch on any of the sort of ironies and humor that the Kubrick film does. I always thought that it was kind of disingenuous that Stephen King was so upset by particularly the ending of the Kubrick film. But this is an example where Really, Kubrick just bought the idea in a sense, and he ran with it in a totally different direction with characters who were developed in a very different way from that novel. And I think that it's a sort of almost a speculative comedy, if you like. I don't know what to call it, really, but I didn't feel horrified so much about watching the film. I feel sort of transfixed by the complexity of the images that I'm not ready when I've seen the film, I, I, I want to see it again to understand what was going on there. Whereas I felt reading the novel, well, it was pretty clear what was going on and it's horrifying and it, it's the work of a master and it's a masterpiece in its own right. But it's almost unfair to compare it with the movie in a way. I've been talking and thinking a lot lately, David, about the movie Rosemary's Baby, where it's clear that Mia Farrow's family, the family she has chosen, they are what is scary. You know, (laughs) the idea that you marry somebody that you don't know well enough and it turns out it's just it just couldn't possibly be worse. And now it's so unbelievably awkward to have to admit that, you know, these are all Satanists or whatever they are. You know, in The Shining, it's less clear to me what's scary. Is it Jack Torrance or is it, I mean, to me, the scariest images uh, in the movie are probably blood pouring out of the elevator, you know, and maybe the, the twins. Come play with us, Daddy. Forever. And ever. And ever. What's scary isn't necessarily... Jack, but maybe I'm reading it the wrong way. These are great questions, Colin. It seems to be a horror movie that is different from other horror movies. And I think you put your finger on one reason. A movie like Rosemary's Baby, and in that way, although of course these are all different movies, but they all share this, that the family is a family horror and the family is somehow united in horror. So you have that in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, very different movie from Rosemary's Baby. But they they share that, that there's a kind of coven or a clan aspect to things. The Stepfather, one of, I think, the most frightening horror movies, or The Hills Have Eyes. All of these are, there's a sort of collective horror in which you have a band of, sort of a familial band of people or monstrous entities, right, who have somehow taken over, you know, they've turned things upside down. So that spilling blood and killing people, slicing them open is what you're supposed to do. So we have none of that in The Shining. We have instead this intense pitched battle between the husband and the wife in which Shelley Duvall in a a magnificent performance proves to be 
remarkably resourceful or surprisingly resourceful, as she's described, and she actually gets the better of the husband. So the family is very divided there, and Jack really is outclassed. He's outmaneuvered in every possible way. I'm gonna go now. I'm gonna try to get Sammy down to Sidewinder and the snowcat today. I'll bring back a doctor. You know, there's a, a way, and it's it's in David's book, but particularly some of the background information about what was done to Shelley Duval, and maybe we'll come to that in a second. But James, there's a way in which her kind of her frailty, her skinniness, her vulnerability, you know, there's a way in which I think other actresses who might have projected a little bit more obvious strength were considered and then not used. There's something about Duval's seeming inability to rise or unlikeliness of rising to the challenge that she's going to face that's especially poignant and powerful in the movie. Yeah, I agree. And I think she knew how to use that, her appearance and her manner very well. Because uh, I can't think of anybody else who quite projected that sort of image of vulnerability, yet she is a very strong character. There's something about her face, the large eyes and the sort of almost as though she's like a stereotype sort of figure of, a, of some sort of like nymph or something. And then when she when she is actually taking on the part, she becomes something totally new. She was really... I, I think she had a lot of fans during that period, and her films were very popular at Sydney Studio. The people actually really sought out her work. I think in this, she was really perfectly cast. I can imagine that the casting, that's one of the interesting things about Kubrick, actually, is how he did casting and how he found the people, the exact people he wanted. He really, he didn't compromise, and I think that the choices he made in The Shining are really remarkable because it did create something so intense and something that really sticks with you. And Shelley Duvall opposite Jack Nicholson was really an incredible pairing. I, I can't, I was trying to think of something else, another film that, that did that, but I can't think of one. Don't hurt me. I'm not gonna hurt you. Stay away from me. Wendy. Stay away. Darling, light of my life. I'm not gonna hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. I'm going to bash them right the f*** in. Please! Stop swinging the bat. Oh, God damn So, uh, just to make sure that Shelley Duvall had no trouble acting downtrodden, David Kubrick saw to it that she was essentially I mean and she was in on this apparently but she was sort of mistreated on the set not just by Kubrick but by everybody just so she would feel whipped in the way that she that character needed to be whipped. Yes don't be too nice to Shelley he would instruct the crew and when Kubrick's daughter Vivian made a, a film about a documentary film about the making of The Shining we have scenes of him uh um, terrorizing Shelley. I think terrorizing is a bit of an overstatement. But she did say that she learned more, much more, about acting from Kubrick than she had from Robert Altman, whose movies she had been in and been a great success in before The Shining. So she certainly knew what he was up to, for sure. You know, it's also, I think, James, 
a story about writing and writers, you know, and, and I'm sure King intended it that way. Because first of all, the fear in every family, in every nuclear family, is that somebody isn't telling you something really important. Where does dad really go all day? <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, you know, what's in that bottle that mom drinks out of in the bathroom when she thinks we're not looking? Or what, you know, there's always that fear that somebody's not telling us something. And then with writers, it's always a little suspicious because what the hell are they really doing? You know, it doesn't even sound like they're typing or whatever. To me, that's maybe another subtext here, right? That the Jack claims he's working on a book and he's in fact writing the same sentence over and over again. That's clearly a comedy about writers, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely it is. It is confirming the suspicion that the writer isn't really writing. I mean, I think that's one of the sort of disturbing jokes in a way that uh, that Kubrick is very good at, sort of like taking away the expectation and poking fun at the very thing that you would be most suspicious of. And I think that also is probably the probably one of the real irritants that Stephen King realized too, that this was a, it, it was kind of a hit on that whole thing. And I can imagine Stephen King with his ego, probably it, it was a direct hit. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whether the f*** you hear me doing in here, when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. How do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. I just saw a movie the other day that is it's called Passengers, I think, and it's clearly a fusion of 2001 and The Shining. It's it, And there's even like sort of Michael Sheen plays this uh, robot bartender who looks like he's sort of right out of The Shining, except he's on a spaceship. It's completely bizarre. Well, uh, you know, there's a trope that's also invoked in The Shining that's come into a lot of, uh, under a lot of criticism over the years. The so-called magical Negro, Scatman Crothers, plays this black character who seems to have access to other levels of truth other insights. You know, Doc, when something happens, it can leave a trace of itself behind. Say, like, if someone burns toast. Well, maybe things that happen leave other kind of traces behind. Not things that anyone can notice, but things that people who shine can see. I think, well, I, I mean, I'm fairly certain that's meant to be a compliment. But as scholars, especially African-American scholars, have wrestled with that trope, they've been less comfortable with that idea. I'm not sure what I think about that in the sense that is it a blot on the movie? It's hard for me to think of it as a blot on the movie. Because it's hard um, to imagine the movie without him. It's hard to imagine the movie without right. Scatman Crothers. It's, it's such a marvelous performance, and it seems it fits in completely with Kubrick's vision. You know, I understand these cultural anxieties, but they tend also to to move with the times so that, you know, I think that Kubrick did very firmly intend to give this character the stage or, or the screen in the way he did. It was a very commanding figure, genial and yet also very stern in a way that I think is fascinating. Mr. Allen, what is in room 237? Nothing. There ain't nothing in room 237. But you ain't got no business going in there anyway. So stay out. You understand? Stay out. 
So it, I don't think the character is a stereotype, I guess is what I'm trying to say. All right, we have to stop there. Our guests have been James Hanley, co-founder of Trinity Cine Studio, and David McKicks, author of Stanley Kubrick, American Filmmaker. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with the always frightening staff endorsements. Avocado. Avocado. That's, by the way, how you learn to do that particular impersonation. Uh, that's not a useful thing uh, that I could tell you, but I don't know if anything is all that useful uh, on today's show, unless that thing turns out to be true, that if you watch horror movies, you're better prepared to survive a terrible situation. Meanwhile, I've got a lot of people to thank for this non-terrible situation, starting with Cat Pastor. She's been in the studio, also uh, helping me prepare all kinds of things, like the segment you're about to hear. Uh, Jonathan McPants is the person who dreams this up every year and makes sure we actually don't forget to do it and then books all the guests and all that kind of stuff. So thanks to uh, all of them. All right. One of the traditions we have here is to ask members of the staff to make their own recommendations and endorsements. So let's start. Oh, I'm scared already. <laughs> let's start with animal lover Carmen Baskoff, a producer on Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Carmen? Okay, today I'm going to endorse the game Coup. I'm a big fan of board games, and this isn't actually a board game because there's no board, but basically the conceit of this game is you're part of a crime family in a Machiavellian power struggle, and the goal of the game ultimately is to kill all your opponents until you're the only one left standing. And you have these different characters. There's like a Contessa, a Duke, an ambassador, an assassin. And then each of the characters has like different powers. They, you know, one can tax people. Obviously, the assassin can assassinate people, etc. But the tricky thing about the game is only you know what characters you have, and you're actually allowed to lie to the other players about the characters you have. And if you successfully lie, you can do things like assassinate people, even if you aren't really the assassin. So I think this has some good Halloween themes because you're like disguising yourself. Also, it's kind of spooky that you're assassinating your friends. And during the pandemic, I've really been enjoying playing a lot of different games virtually online with people. And so this is one of the games that you can play on boardgamearena.com. There may be other places that you can play it virtually as well. And you can kill all your friends. So that's my endorsement. Cool. Carmen Baskoff. If you knew Carmen better, you'd know that an incredibly complicated brain taxing game like that would be Carmen's idea of a way to relax. All right. So uh, now the scariest endorsement of them all, at least most years, Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer. Betsy? I'm endorsing sharing scary stories with kids. My mother shared spooky stories with me when I was little. She was a magician. She was prone to superstitious beliefs and she was the daughter of a woman who tried to resurrect her dead husband, my grandfather, during a seance. So I shared spooky stories with my kids. They liked the Grimm Brothers version of Cinderella, 
where the stepsisters cut off their toes to fit into the prince's slipper and later got their eyes pecked out by the birds who befriended Cinderella. Their fear and horror always seemed mixed with a little bit of fascination. They were particularly horrified when they least expected it. In Alvin Schwartz's retelling of the Green Ribbon, Jenny, a pretty young girl who always wore a big green bow around her neck, falls in love and marries Alfred. She never let Alfred remove the ribbon, even after many years together, and she would never tell him why. Just when it seemed they would live happily ever after, Jenny let Alfred remove the bow, and her head fell off and blood dripped all over the floor. It was very graphic. We shared the horror of that together, mine included. I had no idea that would happen. I thought I may have damaged them for life. Instead, they seemed okay. After we talked about how sad and scared they felt, and they did want to talk about that. My mother's validation that darkness existed by telling me spooky stories prepared me for the terror I felt at seeing my grandmother's dead body when I was six and a violent street fight when I was seven. Kids are scared by lots of stuff that adults have normalized as part of life. We're gaslighting them if we pretend unhappy endings don't happen. All right. And if you would like to make a contribution to the Kaplan Sisters Psychotherapy Fund, send your credit card information to me, Colin at WNPR.org. Moving along here, uh, Ryan Karen King is visuals journalist for Connecticut Public. Ryan, what have you got for us? All right. So I would like to endorse listening to the musical Sweeney Todd and not necessarily the Broadway version. I would go to YouTube and like put in the search bar like local theater production Sweeney Todd or something like that because my first experience with Sweeney Todd was in a pit band for a very local (laughs) theater production of Sweeney Todd Um, and like I would say that show is a little bit more scary than the Broadway version for two reasons one being my job was to play all of the instruments that they didn't have on an electric keyboard using like <laughs> fake instrument sounds. And the second being is that we, we found out like not just in, not in rehearsal, but like during the actual show that the trumpet players were still kind of relearning how to play sheet music and kind of relearning, <laughs> relearning how to play trumpet. Um, which I would say like definitely added to the, like the horrifying experience of the musical. Um, so yes, support local theater when it's safe. And, uh, in the meantime, listen to Sweeney Todd. Now then my friends, now to your purpose. All right. Uh, that was scary. Uh, I got to admit that was scary, but probably not as scary as the recommendation made by Carlos Mejia, digital audience manager for Connecticut public. He's been plotting our doom for months now, Carlos. So somehow during quarantine, I ended up reading just a few Edgar Allan Poe stories, and I can't really remember how or why my wife and I went down this rabbit hole, but it's quarantine, so, you know, this stuff happens. I haven't read any of Poe's work since I was in high school, but, you know, thanks to the power of the internet, a lot of Poe's stories are available for free. And one night, we decided to read A Telltale Heart. And yeah, it's not like Midsommar terrifying, but... For a piece of literature that's nearly 200 years old, it's still really creepy. So my endorsement is to go read Poe. It's free on the internet. You could read it to your loved ones. And it's definitely better than watching Rosemary's Baby. Oh, nothing's better than watching Rosemary's Baby. You learn so much about families. All right, moving right along to Ali Oshinsky. 
former intern with us, now a famous reporter covering the Naugatuck River Valley for Connecticut Public Radio. Allie. I have been, let's call it, occult curious for a long time. I love horoscopes. I vaguely buy into the crystals thing, love tarot cards, and of course, like witchy memes. But historically, I have been solidly skeptical about the existence of ghosts. And spooked, to borrow their term, brought me to the other side. It's a podcast from WNYC Studios and Luminary. And I would say I fully believe in ghosts now. In each episode, a real-life person describes their own personal ghost story. Not all are about ghosts. Some are just spooky, airing on the side of Bigfoot kind of stuff. There are some possessed dolls, lots of haunted houses, cats, a freaky clown in one episode. I'm not going to say it's all true, because I don't think there's a real sustainable way to fact-check that. But Spooked is as journalistic as ghost stories can get. The podcast is an offshoot of Glenn Washington and the Snap Judgment team's storytelling. And he's known to embellish the truth. But the real proof for me that these stories are truthful is in how mundane the interactions between ghosts and humans are. Sometimes ghosts are just little kids who want to steal a toy. Sometimes they're just lost in the afterlife and make an appearance or two and then leave. Sometimes they just want to stand at the end of your bed in the middle of the night and watch you sleep. And what's the harm in that? So, if you're in, you can listen to many episodes of Spooked for free on whatever podcast app. And when you're hooked, you can get a week for free and then pay $5 a month for Luminary. But you really only need it in October. But then you won't remember to cancel it. And then you'll get your credit card bill. And you'll be very, very scared. Uh, All right. So that was Allie. Uh, We're going to end with the big kid and her little kids. Katie Tularski is Senior Director of Storytelling and Radio Programming for... I didn't even know what her title was, to tell you the truth. I just thought she was the big boss of everything. For Connecticut Public, here's Katie Tularski. The first one said, The second one said, There are witches in the air. No! The third one said, We don't care. Don't care. The fourth one said, the fifth one said, My teacher said, if you're talking food, what's your mouth, you choke. Okay, Henry, you need to take a drink so we don't choke. The fifth one said, I'm ready for this fun. I'm ready for some fun. I'm ready for this fun. I'm ready for this fun. I'm ready for this fun. Went the wind and out, out went the And the five little pumpkins rolled out of sight. Rolled out of sight. Rolled out of sight. Happy Halloween! Happy Halloween! Well, that was too cute for words. That was actually Katie Tularski, assisted by Tim Rasmussen, who's director of programming here, and Mark Contreras, our CEO. 
Uh, no, actually, that was her kids, Hadel and Henry, endorsing the five little pumpkins sitting on a gate. So this is kind of the end of the show. And, and we're all alive, which is just terrific. I don't know. My, I'm so afraid I can't even think straight anymore. But we'll be back tomorrow. That's the main thing. <laughs>